This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donation from people like you. Good afternoon. I hope you're finding your way. It repeatedly amazes me, you know, I've done more than one sashin or retreat, and uh, it repeatedly amazes me how each one has its own character, its own particulars to it. both externally and internally. Maybe I'm thinking more so internally, you know. Uh, and, and the challenge for us is each of us in deciphering <coughs> the subjective world we're co-creating and finding the path of liberation in the middle of it. To discover, to, and maybe for many of us it's to rediscover uh, some insights we've had in the past that guide our practice. You know, and we can conceptualize them, but then they're they're actually a little bit misleading. In in the in the intimate workings of them, they are they're not concepts. You know, uh, Leonard Cohen has a song that's called "A Thousand Kisses Deep." I sometimes think our practice is like that. A thousand kisses deep and a thousand kisses wide. Yeah. Like just steadily making contact. Yeah. However the situation is presenting itself, can you make contact? No. And then I came up for myself with that notion I, I mentioned the other day. Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. And then since I'm in the business of giving Dharma talks, I said it in a Dharma talk. Um, that's how it works for me. Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. Yeah. I'd offer it to you and say, if it works for you, please work it. 
I think these things are a little bit like the slogan in recovery. It works if you work it. <laughs> Keep coming back. Um, and if it doesn't work for you, explore, rummage around in your own creativity and genius. Mm. Is, is there a slogan, is there an attitude that keeps bringing me back to now? that keeps instructing me and encouraging me to be present. And to distinguish between that and some uh, should. Should is usually the formulation of some fixed idea of outcome, you know, or fixed idea of how the moment's engaged, you know. Engaging the moment is always a creative act. Because what's arising in the moment is so utterly variable. And yet, a steady process with regards to that ever-changing possibility. A steady process really helps. And for each of us to discover, how do we do that? You know, how do we initiate keeping coming back? making contact. And even though this sounds contradictory from what I just said, coming back, like, there's, there's ways our practice in our glimpses of liberation and awakening can instruct us, and then we can hold them almost like a body memory. Like maybe you're standing in line at mealtime, and and there's a palpable experience of presence. Maybe it's the way you've experienced the light. Maybe it's the way you experience the dignified patience of the Sangha standing in line waiting to eat. And how you are part of that one body of dignity and patience. And then not to repeat the past next time at the next meal. But in standing there, the invitation to embody 
that experience again. There's a very interesting thing that can happen for us when we repeat with present moment awareness, not just concept, it, it starts to have a depth. It starts to have an accessibility. When you do walking meditation and you steadily explore bringing awareness to the foot touching the ground, shifting balance, lifting the other foot with the breath, the body, the nervous system, the motor systems, they learn how to access or how to be accessible to awareness. And we we can carry that into the, the daily routines, the daily activities. You know, how many times will you walk from the meditation hall to your room? You know, how many times will you go to the bathroom? How many times will you drink some water? And that we can use those repeated moments as a way to settle, to settle, to settle, to make contact, to make contact, to make contact. A thousand kisses deep. That's all I remember. That's the only phrase I remember from that song. When we were, um, when Gil and I were discussing and figuring out what aspects of the seven factors we would talk about in our alternate talks, um, we left one out. And I was thinking later, that's kind of great, you know. We've both been practicing 40 years. (laughs) 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 We've probably (laughs) both taught the seven factors of waking many, many times. We've practiced with them. (laughs) We've taught classes on them. We've led retreats on them. (laughs) And then we left one out. We were amused. We didn't start blaming the other. We didn't try to cover up 
and say, no, I didn't do it, you did it. <laughs> no, there's really only six, there isn't seven. <laughs> yeah. No. We noticed, acknowledged, experienced. Mm. And adjusted. Okay then, let's do this. Um, So we'll see what we do. So the factors I'm going to talk about today are uh, tranquility and concentration. Pasadi and samadhi. Um, In some ways the English words are a little misleading. And in some ways, the concept that any one of our experience is that uh, that easily controlled and that linear. You know, oh, you go from this, you know, you go from mindfulness to investigation, and then as you settle in, your effort becomes energetic, you know, and then it blossoms into joy. Your heart's filled with warmth, there's a deep release and settling. And that settled mind and heart can simply be present. (coughs) Opens up to everything that's happening with a profound, all-inclusive equanimity. I was moved by that book I mentioned before, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness. Uh, it reminded me of when I first, when I was studying psychology and I came across a book, it's not a book, it's a manual in DSM, Diagnostic Systems Manual, and it lists all the mental disorders that and I remember reading it and think, yeah, I have some of that. <laughs> yeah. And I have some of that. Schizophrenic, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paranoid delusion, yeah, yeah. Depressed, yeah. <laughs> it's my own strange notion that we all do, you know. But, but can... Um, Can there be adaptability, you know? When your mind's wandering off in a story of its own concoction and you're nodding with conviction that that's the the absolute truth, you know? Could you notice that and think, well, maybe it's not the whole story? Uh, 
I find the book by David Trelevin. It, it's a reminder of the first noble truth. No. We all bring a complex conditioning to retreat. No. That we will all um, negotiate the way in a complex way. I remember when I was first reading the Dhamma and I would read places where it said, and then you do this and then it rolls into this and then this and then this and then the mind is very calm. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I must be kind of abnormal because <laughs> that doesn't happen for me. <laughs> and I don't know how I came up with it, but I remember thinking, but I'm going to keep at it anyway. You know? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm uh, sort of outside the curve of normal, but I'll just keep going. Uh, I was in Thailand and um, I read a part about Buddha Dasa, a teacher, wonderful teacher. And there was a point in his life where he wanted to really establish jhana practice. He wanted to really experience that deep absorption. And so he made an arrangement with his brother. He would live in the forest by himself. And he, he thought it was so important to be without human contact that he had his brother hang food from a tree each day. And he would come and he would get the food and he would eat and he'd go back to his practice. And I think he did this for three years. And then he came out of the forest and he said, um, I didn't do it. I wasn't able to experience deep jhana. I was very impressed. I was impressed by both the utter dedication to give himself so thoroughly, the support of his brother, and uh, the courageous way he took on the task. I was actually staying at one of his monasteries as a lay person, just as you can do in Thailand. And I remember being, after reading that, I was much more attracted to him as a teacher and his writings. Oh. Maybe I thought, well, I'm not the only one who's abnormal. <laughs> I would say to you, 
um, maybe the normal is to be abnormal. This human condition is complex. So how could liberation fit into a tidy list of do's and don'ts? that each of us will follow in a simple sequence. And if we're good boys and girls, we'll end up at the perfect outcome. I was reading in that book where he talks about um, extroceptors and interoceptors, the way we engage the external world through the sense doors. And then we have a, a comparable set of internal receptors, interoceptors. Um, one of the most significant is the vagus nerve, which is a couple of twin nerves that goes from the brain stem down to the heart, to the lungs, to the gut. Um, and, and they are receiving the internal signals of our being. And they're linked in to a system within us, the parasympathetic system, that's that's called um, the rest and digest. You know, it's it's how internally we modulate our tranquility, our sense of ease. But given the fact that none of us have had a suffering-free life, our internal processes um, the dependent co-arising of the life we've had are complex. They get jumbled up no. You can walk outside and maybe feel a little bit afraid. Your rational mind says, there's absolutely nothing to be afraid of here. It, it, it's, it's a lovely place. I'm with lovely people. It's perfectly safe. But the internal world is saying something else. And it triggers these internal systems, positively and negatively. 
Is this the complexity of being a human being? And how amazing, in the midst of that, that making contact, making contact, making contact can be such an enormous help. You know, the complexity of life, the simplicity of practice. And in our internal world, um, as it's cooking up its latest signals of distress, it affects our heart. It affects how we breathe. It affects our gut. No. We have an experience that's so intense, we feel nauseated. You know? We have an experience that's so intense that our heart starts pounding. Or it's hard to breathe. Or our breathing becomes shallow. And we can make contact. We can start to experience. And the awareness and the experiencing create an alchemy, an alchemy that starts to um, integrate that and, and help it to find uh, balance. Doesn't always accomplish that, but it moves it in that direction, you know? We can feel the tight breath, we can feel the sensations of it, the tingling, the pulsing, the tension. And in the experience, um, it offers us guidance towards letting the breath soften and deepen. Yeah. The extraordinary simple practice of contact and experiencing allows us to explore the complexity of our life. And we don't have to hunt down what we're going to contact and experience. It just arises each moment. You know, our thoughts and our feelings we we can um, become somewhat familiar with the territories of both of them. You know, as we pay attention, we we can start to see 
Um, oh, I'm inclined to think like this. You know, I have these kind of, on this retreat, I seem to be thinking about this a lot. I'm inclined to return by default to these kind of mental processes. And similarly with our emotions. And then there's also a mysterious workings underneath. Maybe it's we can blame it all on the vagus nerve. It's actually two nerves, but somehow it gets named as a singular. Someone approached me a couple of years ago, and he had uh, he was packaging mindfulness to teach in school to teach to school children. <laughs> And, and he had a like a 10-minute program. And essentially the kids would s- sit, put their hand on part of the pathway of the vagus nerve, let themselves breathe, and, um, and that would do it. And he was showing me his uh, marketing strategy his advertising strategy, and and I said, and and what about the people who teach it? And he says, oh, that part's easy. And I thought, oh. <laughs> it, it's funny. The simple steps simple steps, but learning how to navigate the complexity of the human experience, there's a lot to learn. We're never done. There's always more. Every retreat has more details, more variations, you know. You do something you've done a hundred times, and it's like, oh, Now I see. You know? Now I see what I see, and as I keep doing this, I will keep learning. So we jumble up the internal world and we make contact with here and now. Externally, and it supports us in making contact internally. Part of the reason that for most of us, 
our bodies become like a torture chamber on retreat. <laughs> Why all of a sudden does it hurt like crazy to sit? Every day when I sit at home, I sit this long and I, it's not a problem. Uh, we're tapping in more thoroughly to the complexity of our inner being. And it's not all accessible, actually most of it's not accessible, to our cognitive mind. And sometimes that can deceive us. I remember there was a time I was at Tassajara, our Zen monastery, and it was in the middle of winter, and it's cold there in the winter. And, uh, and we sit a lot. And I remember um, the intensity of it all and dealing with a lot of things, you know, some of them my own and some of them other people's. And if you'd have said to me, well, are you experiencing the fruits of practice? I would probably have said, what fruits? <laughs> and then I had to go, um, I think I had to go to a chaplaincy meeting that Gil and I do a teaching. And I was driving out in the morning and I looked up at the sky and I just had this feeling of beauty and appreciation. And then I drove a little bit further and I saw some trees and I had the same feeling of beauty and appreciation. And I had this feeling like the world is so beautiful. And I thought, oh, maybe there are some fruits to practice. There are moments like this. Um, how did that come about? I don't know. It just did. I was just there doing my thing and trying to relate to what I was relating to. And that's how it turned out. I would say to you, our practice is a lot like that. We don't know, you know. If I do it like this, will this produce tranquility? Hmm. Who knows? I would say something like, skillful thing is to not worry about that. Is this how you get to the, you know, the golden reward? Um, We just make contact experience. We, we, we let each thing be enlivened with awareness. Yeah. This is uh, 
Virya, you know. Yesterday, Gil was, was talking about the aspect, you know. The, the notion of Virya usually goes from effort persistence to energy. You know? um, as we make contact and experience, the interaction, it, it's like it has its own energy. You can experiment with it, you know. When we're settled and there's some awareness present, you can just direct your awareness, say to some part of the body like the hand that has a lot of nerve endings, and just feel a certain aliveness coming forth through engaging and experiencing. You know, usually the mind has an inclination to be, to direct attention to what seems more urgent for it. And usually the large majority of the time, that's how we're suffering, how we're distressed. Uh, And the contact and experiencing of anything and everything, it helps create the foundation. body, breath, state of mind, you know. This is our practice. This is the gift practice gives us. Um. How will it bear fruit? Mm. Sometimes right in the moment. When we bring attention, directed attention, contact experience. And sometimes when we give up on all that nonsense and just leave things alone. No. We're just doing nothing special. And we receive, you know. This morning, as we were serving, as we were having breakfast, there was an amazing cloud in the sun coming up had colored the that edge of it kind of pinkish purple color 
sort of the territory of tranquility. Um, of course, we will negotiate it because ease, in contrast to dis-ease, is an attractive proposition. Of course, we will try to find the arrangements of cushions or however we sit on the chair that affords some movement towards tranquility. But to remind ourselves that the workings of our being are not all available to the cognitive mind. No. There's a way in which we, we engage the basics with a certain kind of humility. No. And sometimes it brings forth a luster, a beauty, and sometimes... Um, something else, a distress. We open up to some aspect of our being that is a knot of pain. (coughs) And sometimes that knot of pain requires a skillful approach. I find it helpful to say to myself, this is my best effort at being alive. I don't quite understand what that, how that plays itself out. But rather than have some negative judgment about it, explore it. What's that about? No. How can it be that that knot of pain is my best effort of being alive? Can that stimulate exploration, contact? There's a saying in Zen where it says, going south to head north. Sometimes it feels like, okay, we're we're trying to move towards tranquility, but actually what we're doing is opening to suffering. It seems like we're heading off in the opposite direction. But it has a wisdom, because everything that arises for us is asking for inclusion. How can we liberate our being and at the same time try to exclude parts of our human experience?
which we do try to do. <laughs> we tighten around our pain, emotional and physical. Uh, and then how does this feed, how does this support uh, samadhi? Samadhi is commonly translated as concentration. Now, usually when we think of concentration, we think of directed singular concentration, you know, concentrated on this object. But the concentration can stay and the object can change. You know, and in many ways, this is the characteristic of mindfulness, of sati. Yeah. And, and, and this is, um, th- this characteristic helps us to make contact with whatever comes up. You know, that, that the mind has what I usually call receptive attention. Although attention's not such a good word there. Maybe receptive awareness. Directed attention and then receive whatever happens. We can think of samadhi as continuous contact. And, and, and this is the, the workings uh, of our meditation. This is the workings of our mindfulness practice as we go through the day. You know? Continuous contact. Yeah. And one of the great gifts retreat gives us is we we can start to you know usually first several days it's like we're rediscovering what continuous contact is and and we're sort of making a certain kind of strenuous or dedicated effort you know and and if we keep at that what we can often find is that um, whatever kind of tightness there is in the effort is extra, you know. In my experience is we don't figure that out it's 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 that that refinement of the the strenuous part as being extra uh, is not something we figure out. It's just as we practice, um, it's almost like it sorts itself out. You know, sometimes in our sincerity, we double up on our strenuous activity. 
I'm sure you, you, you've heard this, this joke, is where the student goes to the teacher and says, well, if I make a diligent effort, how long will it take to have some experience of samadhi? And the teacher says, oh, about 10 years. And then, and then the student says, well, if I try extra hard, if I'm determined and strenuous, how long does it take? No, oh, maybe 20 years. <laughs> Most of us, in my, my experience, is most of us kind of have to overdo it to kind of find that it doesn't require such strenuous, determined effort. There's a great sense story where the teacher says, Joshua, um, pretty much that. It doesn't require great strenuous effort. And Joshua, who went on to become a great teacher, said, uh, but how will I know if I don't try? And the teacher went on and said more, but it, it, it often struck me, like, yeah, Get in there and make a mess. <laughs> no. That's kind of how we learn, you know. So what if you forget one of the factors of the seven factors of awakening? Now you know you forgot it, make an adjustment. <laughs> So make your mess, you know. Let that uh, let that be how it is. But keep this open, learning mind. Oh, yeah. let it teach you. You know, let it have have the humility, the ingenuity to adapt, no? And in some ways, this is all a learning process, you know? We're learning how to sit. We're, we're learning mindfulness. Sometimes we're learning rudimentary parts of it and how relevant they are, and sometimes we're learning subtle details. Oh. Maybe you notice something like, oh, when I meditate, I hold the muscles on my face like this. And as you attend to it, you realize that's extra. I don't have to do that. No. Maybe you'll learn when some difficult emotion comes up for you, your tendency is to kind of react like this. 
And as you touch it and touch it and touch it, you learn something about doesn't have to be that way. No. That even though part of me feels like that emotion will kill me, um, maybe just exploring it is enough. Or maybe for now, letting it be is appropriate. We're complex. There is no simple strategy that fits everybody. And our samadhi can um, can blossom, be nurtured in in this kind of. Uh, Joshua asked the teacher, yeah, "What is the way?" And the teacher says, "Ordinary mind." Just leave it alone. And when you look at the fundamental teachings on mindfulness, that's exactly what it's saying. Experience it when it's like this. Experience it when it's like that. Nowhere does it say, and if it's like this, you should fix it and make it more like that. It just says experience it. No. Notice, acknowledge, contact, experience. And Joshua says, how will I know if I don't try? How will I know that deeply if I don't get in there and mess around with the workings of my own being? How will I know if I don't invest in engaging it? And discovering. <laughs> yeah. So the beautiful formulas that say we move like a golden arc through the seven factors and arrive at the base of the rainbow and find the pot of gold. Um, in a way, it's saying, we're totally capable of it. It's a journey that human beings have taken. And you have the genius and the creativity to follow that path. Um. But boy, will a lot happen as you do, you know. Buddha Dasa went on to become a wonderful teacher, 
One of the things I loved about him was um, he wrote a book on Anapanasati. And I remember reading the edition he wrote in the 70s. And then he wrote a book which was a modification of the first one about 10 years later, which was quite different. And then he wrote another book called Anapanasati, which was quite different from both of those. Always learning, always discovering the teachings of the Dharma. Thank you.